Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele and I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan and today's episode is These Arms of Mine where we'll discuss regional anaesthesia for the upper limbs with special guest Dr. Michael Kerr. As always in this podcast we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Michael Kerr works in both public and private practice in Brisbane. He trained in regional anaesthesia at the Princess Alexandra Hospital and currently works part-time at the QE2 Hospital with a special interest in regional anaesthesia. Outside of work, he's interested in cooking, fitness and tinkering on projects. Mick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Hooray, we're excited. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, today we're going to switch it up and cover regional anesthesia for the upper limb compared to the lower limb that we discussed last time. Now, last episode, you described yourself as a regional anesthesia zealot. Does this extend from the lower limbs up to the upper limbs as well? Uh, any limb. Uh, if there's a, like I said last time, I think if there's a pulse, I'm pretty keen to block it. So <laughs> <definitely>. <laughs> That's awesome. Excellent. So, look, Mick, how do you think about upper limb blocks in terms of categorizing them? I think we mentioned last time, so talking about things and, or categorising things based on the, the description of the block, you know, the, the various types of blocks that we know about or, or the anatomy. Mm. I think one of the key differences here between sort of upper and lower limb is that we've only got generally only one plexus to deal with. Yeah. You know, in the lower limb, you've got your, your sacral plexus and lumbar plexus, but with the upper limb, it's really just the brachial. You can talk a bit about the cervical, but most, for the most part, it's, it's brachial plexus, which is kind of nice because it gives you one target. And that sort of means that with some of the peripheral techniques, you can block the entire arm, mm. whereas you can't really do that with the lower, with the lower limb. You've sort mm. of got to do central neuraxial stuff or get fancy with, with blocking both of those plexus. Mm. Is it plexuses or plexi? I don't know. <laughs> These are one of the big unanswered questions from the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this My gut's telling me things. plexuses, yeah. but I'm not really... Don't quote me on that. So be something we need to Google after the episode, clearly. Very so. embarrassing. I'm pretty sure I Googled that like literally two or three days ago. Oh, really? My senality. I've forgotten it already. So, yeah. Sorry about that. It's all good. We like to ask uh, a big sorry. questions okay. on this, on so, this podcast. Tangenting back for categorizing, I, I'm, you know, I'm not smart, so I just sort of think about it in terms of the, the described technique. So pick, look at your clavicle. You're either above it or below it. And, mm. you know, you've got interscalin, superclav, infraclav, and an axillary. And then you've got your different branches as well. Yeah, oh, no, that, nice that's pretty much how I would straightforward. Well. Yeah, yeah, just in anatomical terms is usually the, <clears throat> the easiest. Now, this is another broad question, but it leads to a good conversation. What sort of patients or procedures do you think benefit from upper limb blocks the most? And I'm anticipating the answer: anyone having surgery on the upper limb. <laughs> but there are, <laughs> <laughs> but I know that there are certain, you know, yeah, certain subcategories of patients or procedures yeah, that yeah. we would be more likely. So, in your mind, how do you think about that? I feel like all my answers have got to have like little, little, little asterisks behind them with like little <laughs> sort of disclaimers. So, again, I don't think everyone has to have a block, but I think when you start to consider some of the patient surgical and anaesthetic factors, 
some things in those categories will, will make me think more and more about the block and whether or not mm. it's going to be of use for either analgesia or the anesthetic. You know, are we doing it as a GA sparing technique? Mm. So I guess if we ponder those, so surgical anesthetic and, and patients, so surgically, things that hurt, yeah, I think there's a role. So shoulder stuff, particularly scope stuff, mm. um, some of the bony stuff, so replacements, repairs, arthroscopies and all the weird sort of things we're doing with keyhole stuff, I, th- I think there's a tremendous role. Yeah, I'm inclined then to there's agree some there. Specific, there's some specific stuff. So, you know, you're doing a re-implantation. There's possibly mm. some benefit there yeah. um, from the sympathetic blockade. Things like fistulas, you know, there's definite benefit there. Mm. That's, that's something that's been repeatedly shown and is probably in vascular surgery recommendations now is that patients have a brachial plexus blockade mm. if, if and when possible, you know, depending on your skill set and all that sort of stuff. Not to get too nerdy into it, but if you look at some of the literature for it, so there's a thing called the primary patency rate for fistulas. And honestly, there's so, the definitions are so hard to get your head around that it causes migraine, but basically think of it as so if you create a fistula and you look, say, three months down the line, is that fistula working or not? Is it functional or not? It turns out that doing the fistula formation with a blockade with a brachial plexus blockade improves that by upwards of say about 20 percent oh wow and that, that, yeah 20 percent, right and that's mm. pretty significant when yeah. you think about like what that means so if you block someone's brachial plexus often they'll find that the mapping that they've done the dilation that you get will mean that they can actually use a more distal target so if you had to have a fistula mm. and you know that you've got a certain number of targets that, that you can have throughout your expected lifetime you know you start more distally and you work your way up the arm mm-hmm. um if that means that you can start more distally than you otherwise would have that that's huge yeah. and if, if it means that in three months time you actually have to use that fistula for dialysis and one-fifth of the time it's more likely to be working yeah like as a patient but i'm pretty interested in that yeah it's not insignificant is it that's huge i think it's one of the areas where we can really possibly make a really big difference to the surgical outcome you know as you say a lot of the time it's great to have better analgesia depending on patient preference but yeah this is a true interaction between Mm. our anesthetic technique improving surgical outcome Mm. so it's an interesting thing to ponder isn't it Mm. and you know i think i think a lot of the time we think renal patients are getting regional anesthesia because they're pretty you know they've often got a lot of comorbidities they might be high risk ga but actually it's not just that is it Mm. It, it's it's actually affecting surgical outcome yeah totally i think that you know it's kind of a challenge when you ask someone say they're going towards their part two exam or just in general you sort of say what has got strong evidence for anything in anesthesia that we do that changes an outcome you look at how much paper's been wasted dolphins have been killed <laughs> when we're trying to talk about you know tiva versus sevo versus blah 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 yeah. about cancer outcomes mm. and all those sort of things the outcome is probably i don't know but this is something that has got good evidence behind it it's, mm. it's kind of mm. interesting it doesn't get as much sort of fanfare as, mm. as some of the other stuff mm. yeah yeah 100 particularly onco-anesthesia yeah everyone's definitely going down <laughs> very popular <laughs> down the so many strong opinions yeah, yeah. Um, strong opinions either way right yeah. Absolutely. And so you, you were mentioning before about the, you know, the patient factors for the, the renal patients, you know, they're crumbly, they've got comorbidities, all that sort of stuff. You know, there's, there's other times where you'll have, you know, you might have like a really difficult airway, you might have yep. a septic patient or, mm. you know, other sort of patient considerations, you know, they might have complex pain on methadone mm. or, you know, got crips or something like that. And they're the patients, I think, you know, all these sort of little factors. So there's, you know, they all sort of combine. Yep. Yeah. I think, okay. um, one of the things that I see a big difference is, is just like the, it makes me feel a bit sick saying it, but the patient journey. So I worked mm. in different hospitals. And so in, in some hospitals where you've got a less collegiate interaction between the surgical and anaesthetic departments. Uh, um, very you, profesh. You can see, <laughs> there's no pent up anger here. No, um, of course not. 
so so if you look at say say you want to do a shoulder operation and you're going to involve regional or not like and again little asterisks you know not everyone needs blocks but they should <laughs> if you look at the the anesthetic that a patient has and, a, and the course that a patient has when you involve a, a block for a shoulder operation so so no block so we're going to give them things like ketamine lignocaine clonidine mm. you know mm. all these crazy infusions you've got all these pumps going they wake up pickled um, mm. yeah you're shaking the morgan trolley trying to see if there's any other crap in there that you can put into the patient so, mm. so they're not going to scream when they wake up you look at them in recovery they're a zombie they've got iv fluids they've got mm. postural nausea and vomiting and they've got a pca yeah, that's one option. And then you've got a surgeon holding up a bit of paper that says, oh, yeah, local infiltration analgesia is equi analgesic, <laughs> sure. Mm, um, sure. And then you look at the other anaesthetic course that you have. So you, you have 100 of fentanyl to put an LMA or a tube in. Mm. You might run some REMI depending on how long the procedure goes for. You turn it off, 20 minutes later in PACU, that REMI's gone. That patient has essentially no opioid mm, on board. Yeah. They're awake, they're comfy, they're eating and drinking. They don't need IV fluids. They meet discharge criteria to PACU a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, they meet discharge criteria from the wards to go home a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, even the physios have evidence that says that they are able to participate in their post-operative rehab stuff earlier and more successfully. Mm. Um, it's just completely different. Yeah, it's I think a very good point. It's just, and I think that, that sort of also highlights that things can tangibly change for the benefit of a patient when we have a collegiate interaction between the two mm, departments. Definitely. You know, I'm not saying that anaesthetics is always right and the surgeons are wrong. No, they're, they're experts and they're experts in their field in that area and they know a hell of a lot of stuff that we don't know and, and don't appreciate mm. about this interaction. But on the same side of things, you've, you've also got experts on the other end of things. Yeah. And I think that's a really important sort of interaction to have yeah. Uh, yeah. appropriately. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Alrighty, so we're going to approach the next part of this episode in a similar way to how we approached everything with lower limb blocks. And now we're going to discuss some of the most common upper limb blocks. So firstly, let's start really high and begin with an interscalene block. So Mick, what is your approach to the interscalene block? I'm just going to add, as a regional enthusiast as well, yeah. I'd like to add, what are some traps? Because there are a few with this block. <laughs> So I'm going to I'm going to interpret that as uh, it's going to make me think about all the times I've buggered something up, uh, which is a lot and continues to happen. Um, <laughs> it's easy with an interscaling. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. They're fickle, aren't they? Yeah, I do I do a lot of these at the moment, and I think as with any skill, it's something that the, the more you do, and the more you read about them, and the more you learn about them, as is true with everything, the more you know, the less you know. Yeah. Um, but the, the more you notice and the more you see, and there's a few things you've got to like really keep in mind that I possibly didn't appreciate as, as much as I should have when I was going through and learning. Uh, again, I'm still learning. So pre-scanning people as soon as you can. If you're thinking about doing awake stuff, so say if you're going to do an interscaling for a, that would be an awake shoulder, that's pretty uncommon in Australia, but certainly happens around the world. Mm. At the, the same sort of tip goes for anything to do with any regional. If, you're doing, if your plan is for an awake operation, get that patient as soon as possible and scan them. Um, mm. And sometimes to me that means getting them to clinic. Like if I know this patient's coming in in a week's time for something and they've got, say, you know, if they're 200-something kilos and we're doing some sort of surgery, I'll bring them to clinic so I can scan them so I know mm. what I'm getting myself into. Mm. That's a good idea. Um, which is super handy. So there's a huge variation. So as always, things in textbooks and YouTube is just, you know, there's traffic lights which you can't miss mm. with a, you know, a sign telling you where to put things. The reality is that the inscaling plexus looks uh, so the brachial plexus at the interscaling fossa looks completely different in so many people. Oh, so my gosh, yes. It drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> even, I know. Even it's even just on, so yeah. rude, right? It's oh, like, my gosh. How dare right. they? Especially, And I feel like especially where there's shoulder pathology, it's unusual to see normal mm. n like yep. nerve anatomy. And, and it even, oh, even, drives even, me nuts. Like when I get the registrars to scan me if they want to use me as a model, like even mine are mm. completely different between one side and the other. Like one side's pretty much textbook yeah. and the other one's... 
Yep. Not. <laughs> a hot mess. Yeah. I, I have the <laughs> most disappointing. This is like true in general. I have the most disappointing anatomy. We can't have it all. We can't have it all. I have the arteries of a vascular path. Whenever I scan my own arteries, it's horrifying. My femoral artery is so small. I'm like, I know I'm a small person, but seriously. Oh, my I, gosh. I don't smoke. You anyway. don't stand a chance, No, do you? might have been the vascular surgeons before you know it. Anyway, um, anyway back to the interscaling. Um, yep, sorry. Yeah, okay, you're so, exactly um, right. Basically yeah. what I do is I find find the things I want to block, find the things I don't want to block, and then find a path to get there. So for interscaling, I think you've got two main options. And what I, what I tend to do is I just plonk the probe on. Um, so I'll plonk it on in the neck around the cricoid cartilage because you're sort of in the vicinity then. And then one or two things will happen. You'll look at it and go, oh, sweet. Or you'll look at it and go, <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. Mm. Now, either way, um, once I've plonked it on and had a look around, well, I'll try and orientate myself to, to three things. So it'll be where's the anterior scalene, the middle scalene, and where's the plexus? And if you can see them at that time, that's great. You can just fiddle around with your probe and optimize things. But if not, and this is what I do for most approaches, is I'd scan down the neck. So you're sort of fanning down towards that supraclavicular yep. fossa that we're, most of us are familiar with, yeah. you know, don't, where it sort of sits with a superclav block. So you fan up and down the neck. And as you do that, I tend to do this a bit quicker than um, I think most people approach with the probe is because what you're looking for is a sense of movement. Mm-hmm. And when you practice this, you can start to see things coming in and out of you and joining together and separating. And, yeah. and what you're looking for is particularly for the interscaling is you're looking for the C5, C6 nerve roots that join together, they become the superior trunk and then you go back up the neck and they separate out mm-hmm. and then you can sort of go, sweet, okay, that's, that's, that, if that's superior trunk and that's joining together and separating out to C5 and 6, that should be C5 and 6, then the next thing you can do, and this takes a bit of practice and I would encourage everyone to do it when you've got a bit of time, is once you've got, say, C6, Go up the neck even more. And as you do this, now do this slowly, you can eventually start to see the transverse process. So it'll dive down into the TP. Mm. And then you keep going up and you look at C5 and that'll dive down into the into the C5. Mm. And so then you come back down the neck and you see it almost like spits it out. You can see like the C5 root getting spat out and the C6 root getting spat out. And then they'll join together. And once they join together, that's when you start doing the little sort of movements with your probe. So is it rotation? Is it the angle of the probe? And that sort of stuff to, to make the image a bit brighter around the nerves. Mm. Okay, so now say we've got we've got C5, we've got C6, and a really common thing is that the traffic lights are pretty much never involving C7. So mm. some texts yeah. and, and yeah. sources are still te- teaching that. It is, that is the norm is C5 and C6 yeah. with a split. And C6 split, yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, And yeah. that's why you have to be careful isn't um, it, not to go through, like, you know, exactly. if you've got two C6, you don't want to go kind of behind the plexus at all because you could actually be piercing through. Skewering it, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awful. So once we've got, we've got our spot, then we've got a – so we've found the things we want to block. We want to find the things we don't want to block. And so those are going to be vessels and, and nerves for the yeah. most part. There's two specific nerves that you've got to look out for. So there's the long thoracic and the dorsal scapular nerve. And the reason why they're important is because as they course down the neck, they often go into the, the body of the middle scalene. So and mm. you, you don't stress if you can't remember the names of them for anyone's listening, but all you've got to remember is there's occasionally two bright little specks of something in the middle scalene muscle. Mm. Okay. Don't put a needle in them because that's a nerve. Yeah, okay. um, And often... Often there's a huge amount of variability here. So sometimes you'll see them, sometimes you won't, often you will. And often it's only as you do that movement. So as you're going down the neck and up the neck, you'll see these sort of things going in. As you go down the neck, they'll spread out. As you go up the neck, they'll sort of come back into the plexus. And once you've fa- so we found what we want to block, avoiding what we don't want to block. So we don't want to block those two nerves and they can get in the way of the needle path 
to get to the plexus. Yeah. And then there's two, sorry, there's three other things that can get in the way in terms of the arteries. There's three named arteries. And yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll meet them somewhere between the interscalene sort of block and the supraclave block. So there's dorsal scapula, transverse cervical, and I think it's suprascapula. Yeah, whatever. There's there's three arteries that you just got to avoid. Three so pulsing always things, no worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> avoid the pulsing um, things. And so then, yeah, so so again, we've, we've found C5, found C6. We're, we're watching it split and sort of come back together. We're uh, avoiding those two um, nerves within the middle scalene. We've chucked our Doppler on. We're avoiding the pulsating things. Mm. And so it's kind of tiger territory. You, you often have a little space within which to get mm. past that prevertebral fascia yeah. into the middle scalene and then that safe trajectory to the plexus whilst also keeping in mind that this block of all of them has probably got the highest instances of nerve injury. So yeah. I reckon a really good thing would be don't be brave with this block. Be cautious. Yeah. And so you would friends, use, knows what they're doing. generally, and so you just do a um, in-plane technique, you know, most people yep. you need like a five, mm. you know, 50 millimeter needle. And yeah, I was wondering about that because I must say I'm, I'm a bit like you with this block. I tend to, if I'm not sure, I just inject a little bit and see where it goes. Because sometimes, even though you think you've not necessarily pissed like through the fascia, it just spreads and all of a sudden you're seeing a nice spread of, you know, your yeah. you know, roots and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> like must be in the right, even though, you know, even the, but, you know, other blocks you kind of need to, you know, for a popliteal, for example, if you don't get that really nice pop through, it's generally yeah. not going to be in the right spot. But I have to say within scaling, sometimes I'm a good half a centimetre away and I just inject. I'm like, oh, it's still spreading beautifully. Okay, I'm just not even going to go. I don't, if I don't need to go closer, I'm not yeah. going to go closer. It's kind of, you know, like if it's working and I can see it working on ultrasound yep. and I don't know, what's your sort of approach in terms of the actual of injecting and getting close to the nerves? It varies. So I think you've got to differentiate if you're doing awake surgery or you're mm. doing an analgesic block. Mm. I'm pretty, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but I, I get pretty friendly with the nerve roots when if I'm doing it for something I, I mm. need 100% certainty mm. on, yeah. but I am really cautious mm. um, uh, and I get really anxious. My sphincter gets very tight when I watch other people <laughs> do similar things. So, yeah. um, so I think it, with, with extreme caution and with the right reasons and also appreciating some of the recent studies that talk about proximal blocks, as in when you're really close to the roots, there's potentially a, a risk of causing an intravascular injection. Mm. With all these caveats in mind, mm. occasionally I'll get very close. Most mm. often what I'm doing now is I'm being super cautious, yep. getting through them towards the end of the middle scalene muscle. And I'll start mm. doing what you indicate where I'll start a little bit of injection and then move forward, a little bit of injection, move forward. Yeah. And often you can find that you can get a reasonable amount of local around the plexus, certainly enough to cause good analgesia mm. uh, in, in a safe way. And I know a lot of people, um, there's contention in how people do this block, but I do, yeah, I think both ways are reasonable in, in the right circumstances. Mm. Mm. I think you're right when you're teaching though, because you just can't, you can't feel. And I think feeling is such a big part of, yeah. of nerve yeah. blocks and you just can't yes. feel what other people are feeling. And you can see tenting oh. and that's so it's just, but it's not the same. It just isn't. And it's very hard to describe, isn't it? Mm. How, yeah. yeah. That's and and <laughs> the time when you look over and they're like gently injecting with the fist sort of cramming down oh, into yeah. the syringe, you're like, is it low pressure? Oh, it's low pressure. And it's like, and the patient's sort of just screaming. You're like, oh, no. Ah. Mm. Oh, no. Yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think yeah. it's hard because sometimes the trainees, you know, you have to jump in and you might have to finish the block off and they're looking at you thinking, I'm doing exactly the same thing as you, but there's a responsibility element. Like I'd rather, you know, if there's going to be a problem, then I'm going to have to deal with it regardless and maybe I need to do it for their safety. And secondly, it's just subtle and it's very hard, isn't it? It's one of those challenges of teaching regional. Yeah, Um, I think it's one of those really interesting blocks where the balance of Mm. sort of pushing boundaries uh, and expanding your competency 
he's sort of tempered by a risk of injury mm. and difficulty with the approach. Mm. Like it's, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, the argument, if you get too close and if people, and, and we, I mean, I've talked a lot about this with other blocks as well, but if you're really pushing and driving a pressure towards that plexus, it's very easy just to like head into the plexus. Yeah. You know, and it really requires a subtlety. If you, if you want to pierce through, you know, pierce through anything, you might be doing better off doing like a more jabbing-y kind of motion, but it's very hard to teach that because people drive the pressure and keep driving. I'm like, no, yeah. no, no. Like, mm. So, and, and as you say, Yeah, it's like they're doing you, fencing. It's like, oh. yeah, That's actually yeah. a good way of putting it. It's a good mental, yeah. Whereas, in, and as you say sometimes, yeah, I, it's interesting how I can inject, yeah, further away from the plexus than I think I need to be and still get a beautiful picture and a beautiful result and, and often only need maybe 10 mils, maybe 12, you know, occasionally I'll end up putting 15 in, but often it's actually a lower on the lower. I mean, mm. in the literature people like to show off about three mil, you know, interscalings and stuff, oh, don't yeah. they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's actually an interesting point is um, I do see some people using 30 mils and that makes oh, me anxious God. because the that interscaling so groovy bit, uh, if you want to get no doubt, go read about the, the anatomy for it. There's some good article. I can chuck them in show notes if that's a yeah, thing. Yeah, like yeah. Thing. it totally Sweet. is. Totally a thing. Um, but basically that space is a continuation of the epidural space. Yeah. Uh, and so if you, at, mm. at certain points, if you, uh, the more volume inject, the more likely it is to spread medially. Uh, and oh, I don't gosh. think anyone wants to cause a cervical epidural. <laughs> no, oh so be cautious with your total volumes. I was just thinking. If, you, you, if you're using 20 mils, uh, think twice. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Except, except if you're a pain specialist, maybe you'd be able to like, <laughs> oh my goodness. They like this survival. The cervical epidurals tend to be under II, which I feel like, <laughs> and a bit of dye as well anyway. Yeah, so look, that's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think interscale it's a great block isn't it but it's um and in terms of yeah. uh, putting a catheter in do you ever have a different approach i mean i i know some people actually go through basically kind of like through the trapezius and kind of hold it in place like kind of become like a posterior approach for a catheter or do you tend to just do the same like in plane it depends most of the time i'll do an in-plane approach depending on what kit you've got so if you do the in-plane approach I'll, that's when i'll i will be a bit friendly with the roots I'll, mm. I'll get between c5 c6 and i'll try and thread out a little bit of catheter. The SUI kits, the, the green ones that are the catheter over needle are pretty mm. good. But with, the problem with those is you can't chain, you can't thread much more catheter out mm. um, after the needle ends, but you don't really need to. And I, I think with this catheter technique in these areas, like it's such a small area. Like if you That's looked right. at the like yeah. total volume of this area, it's tiny. So I, whatever makes sense at the time, but most time in plane going through C5, C6, very gently, very carefully, putting a little bit of catheter out, making sure it's not poking out into the anterior scaling mm. muscle body itself securing it however you can and just appreciating that there's a very good chance of a secondary failure in the next 24, 48 hours. Yeah, because it doesn't take much to dislodge it, does it, under those circumstances. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I, and also, I'm not using – are you guys using catheters very much? Like I, I, oh, I no. chuck a bunch of adjuncts in and they seem to last long enough to yeah. do the job and – yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, as you know, I've been off work for a few months, but um, <laughs> yeah, at uh, home in your in your recent experience, yeah, so. yeah. to your daughter who is <laughs> yeah, three months, yeah, that's yeah. Right. But yes, when I was at work prior to June, yeah, no, we weren't doing a lot of catheters anymore. Right. You know, mostly single. Uh, it depends on the patient. You know, who got someone who has some yes, serious yep. chronic pain issues and they're having a larger and open shoulder procedure, then we might go down that route. But I think, and it depends on the time of day a little bit as well. Yeah, you totally. know, if it's one of those blocks you don't at two o'clock in the afternoon, it's going to wear off in the middle of the night. We might put a catheter in. But more often than not, we I think now we really tend to um, single shot, bridge them with some other stuff, maybe even get some ketamine into them and give them a PCA if we think it's going to wear off an awkward time of day and just reassess because the beauty of having the setup we have at work is we can always bring them back and pop a catheter yep. in them if they need it or repeat the block or whatever they need. So, mm. yeah. And actually, this discussion leads beautifully into, Mick, I wanted to get you to explain what you actually 
put in your blocks. So let's say, just as an example, let's say this is for a reverse total shoulder and you just want analgesia. What's your typical mix of what you would put in your block and how much of it? Interscaline, of course. So for for the most part, I'll just use 0.375 yep. for no other reason other than that it's easy to mix up. Yeah. Um, it's not a high concentration. Um, and so repivacation we're talking about here. Sorry, yes. just for our listeners. <laughs> Greatest stroke. Yes. Yeah. So actually, no, that, that is a good point. So like, is there any benefit into adding um, lignocaine with the repivacaine? Yeah. Not really when it comes to onset, a couple of minutes. Within scaling. Yeah, exactly. It's so close to You potentially lose hours. Like you might lose three to four hours by yeah. using that mixture which is interesting. So I'm like, I'm doing this for analgesia. I want this to last a reasonable amount of time and I don't care too much about the onset of a couple yeah. of minutes. I'll, I'll much prefer just having plain repivacaine, having, okay. still having that reasonable onset and that extended duration. Yeah. And then I chuck some additives in. So okay. um, pretty much anyone who doesn't have, you know, pretty brittle diabetes is going to get some de- IV dexamethasone. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, part of the um, multimodal analgesia we know it helps a lot with post-operative pain yeah. um, it may reduce the risk of rebound pain it's great for post-op nausea and vomiting but it prolongs your block almost as long as perineural mm. so you know cake and eat it too uh, and then um, in about 50% of the time I'll use dexmedetomidine okay. um, perineural what sort of um, dose are you putting in the block so I'm usually doing somewhere around 20 to 30 mics. So okay. a lot of the literature Total. initially was using, yep, okay, a, a cool. lot of the literature was using about a mic per kilo, which is a pretty That's hefty a dose, dose yeah. and you get a lot of hemodynamic changes. And if you're doing beach chest stuff, it's it's really noticeable. So mm. I'll often have people with a bis on. So one, one of the surgeons I work with pretty much does everyone laterally. So he's doing things like latages and reverse shoulders laterally, which is delightful for me. Perfect. Um, but I'll give them a GA plus this block. I'll chuck in 20, 30 mics of Dexmed as part of the block and I'll have a bis on and they'll be running pretty light when it comes to their requirements for the anaesthetic. Mm. So it certainly has systemic effects. Mm, um, and wow. for most people, they'll get somewhere around 20 hours or more of yeah, analgesia from that's it. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I follow them all up um, and, yeah, mm. the difference. And one more question, sorry. With your interscaling blocks, about how much volume do you use? Oh, uh, two meals. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sure you do. Sure you do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a nebulous answer and I apologise, yeah. but as much as I need. So yeah. um, I fill a 20 mil syringe with 0.375 and say 30 mics of dexmedetomidine. And then I'll do that cautious approach a little bit. One of the things I've taught myself um, I, I really like is I can sort of hold the needle and do the injection myself now for most things. And I think I get a lot of feedback from that. But what it means then is I'm I'm not wasting as much of my local. And so I'll do that cautious approach, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And eventually if if I get it right, you can can get a really nice spread between the plexus and the middle scalene muscle. Mm. So not in the plexus, but just past the middle scalene muscle. And then you normally only need about somewhere around five to 10 mils there. Um, And if you want to leave things there, you're probably pretty sweet. Um, But if you want to do the slightly more aggressive thing, which you shouldn't be doing unless you're comfortable with regional, um, where you go either over C5 or between C5 and C6 and put a little bit more there, another another four or five mils. Mm. So usually I'll look down at the syringe at that point and go, so basically the reason why I fill the 20 mils up is because that's a hard limit for me. Uh, Mm. And I'm doing my own injection. I'm not looking down and going, okay, exactly, you know, point two five of a mil here mm. and i'm sort of going looking down and going oh i've got a bit left um yeah. and most of the time i'll finish it with about five mils left so great. 10 to 15 mils in total great okay. thanks again for joining us this week on deep breaths as always you can reach us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com we love hearing all of your suggestions for future topics and possible guests to approach so please keep the emails coming 
You can find us on most major podcasting platforms and following us makes it easier to find new episodes. Don't forget to claim CBD if you're a fellow or consultant. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.